Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I'm Donal McIntyre and this is Murderers and Their Mothers, the companion podcast to the CBS reality series, which airs every Sunday from the 15th of May at 10 p.m. Throughout this series, we're investigating some of the world's most notorious killers and asking, were these murderers born evil or did their relationships with their own mothers make them into monsters? On today's episode, we look at the case of Robert Black, a man who was every parent's nightmare. Following a nationwide manhunt, he was convicted of the murder of four young girls in the 1980s. However, he is linked to the murders of at least 15 more. But what drove Robert Black to be Britain's most prolific child killer? Well, joining me to discuss Robert Black are Dr Elizabeth Yardley, Director of the Centre for Applied Criminology at Birmingham City University. Hello. And also clinical forensic psychologist Dr Mike Berry. Thank you. Robert Black was born on the 21st of May 1947 in Falkirk, Scotland. However, he was an illegitimate child, a shameful act in the 1940s, and was abandoned by his mother. He was initially put up for adoption, but instead, aged just six months, he was placed in the foster care of Jack and Isabel Tulip in the highland town of Kinlochleven. Well, talk about the social stigma in relation to Robert Black. We've seen social stigma attached to the families of other serial killers. Why is this important that he's an illegitimate child, Mike? Go back to when he was born. It was very much the case that you got married and you had children. You didn't have children out of wedlock. So he would have been seen as dodgy, to say the least. It would have been, his mother would have seen, been seen as somebody of low moral status and by default the child would have been seen as of low moral standard as well. And it's what his mother goes on to do afterwards that really kind of twists the knife in for Robert Black because she goes on to marry and have four other children and she never sees Robert ever again. So, so it is quite a, a significant episode. And the concept of fostering, the fact it's a halfway house, I mean, some people would take a child and they would adopt their child who was initially there in, in foster care. Is he aware of the transient position he's in? I think the one thing you have to remember is fostering, you got money, adoption, you didn't. So it was seen very much as a useful income. So we have this child who's a bit difficult, therefore the authorities are not going to be too fussy about who the fostering parents are going to be. And it's a win-win situation for the foster parents. And what are the emotional scars that that abandonment by his mother will leave on him? This idea that he's been, you know, abandoned by by his natural mother, and and he's with these people who are caring for him because they're paid to do so, is quite a significant thing, isn't it? Now, Mike, he's not only abandoned, but also he has abuse inflicted upon him at this foster home. 
Yes, they seem to have been quite uh, uh, violent uh, parents. Now, the, the, the problem is, are they using violence to exert a certain amount of discipline on it, on an unruly boy, or are they getting sadistic pleasure out of the violence they're inflicting on him? We don't know. This is well, a really interesting point, isn't it? Because now, you know, any kind of violence towards children is, is completely abhorrent and not tolerated. But back then, there was some tolerance of a level of physical discipline, you know, to keep kids in line. So, so where that, that line was drawn, you know, between abuse and between discipline was, was quite a blurry one. And of course, he's seen covered in bruises within the community and nobody shouts stop. No, exactly. So, so you've got to wonder what's, what's going on here. But you would have had the situation where other people said, don't spare the rod. And, you know, if the child needs a good thrashing, you give him a damn good thrashing. Well, let's hear more about his life with his foster parents. Here's forensic psychologist Kerry Danes. He was punished for bedwetting, and that would have led to anxiety about loss of control because if he loses control he's going to be beaten for it but also harsh punishments provide a role model they provide a blueprint of behavior so he would have seen violence as normal really that becomes central later on to his sexual fantasies and his wanting to project fear onto others now the punishment he suffered he was punished at the at his foster parents, he was punished by the tulips for bedwetting. And what kind of anxieties would that impose upon him, Liz? Well, that's that's going to be, you know, a really awful thing to experience because most children, when they wet the bed, they're comforted by their parents. They're told it's OK, don't worry, um, and, you know, we'll we'll get through it. And, and they try various things, you know, to get them out of that kind of behaviour. But he's punished for it, and that's just going to make him even more anxious and even more likely to wet the bed. But he's also much older. He's, he's older than when most children, by the time they get to school, you'd expect them to be dry most nights. He's wet and he's much older than that, so he is going to be attacked by the, the foster parents and either verbally or, in this case, physically as well. What is it about him that, and I'm sure it's a question he asked himself, what is it about him that invites all this abuse and fear? He is not a very appealing boy. If you want to survive in a foster home, you've got to be funny or you've got to be appealing. You've got to be obedient. He doesn't seem to have any of those characteristics. What red flags are we seeing in his childhood at this early stage that might suggest that there would be problems in, his, in, in the future? I certainly would take note of the bedwetting. The older he is, the more worrying bedwetting is. And you'd say, well, that indicates somebody with a high level of anxiety. What's happening in this child's life that is causing that anxiety? I wouldn't be looking at him being deviant yet, but I would be looking at what's going on in his life. And I would have thought people would be thinking about the foster home, the parents, that kind of response, not any response from him. And, of course, at the age of five, his foster dad dies. And, of course, it's perhaps the only male role model he knows in his life. Um, how does he cope with that? This is a, a particularly troubling time for him because, you know, when Robert Tulip dies and he's out of the picture, um, he's in the, the sole care of his, his foster mother, Margaret, and, and she's not a particularly warm parent by any stretch of the imagination. Within the home, after the death of his foster father, is there a sense that he's desperately striving for more and more affection from his mother, foster mother, and is never going to get it? 
It's highly unlikely he would have got it from her. She comes across as a rather cold character to start with. She's not got any great warmth and affection towards him. She has her own grief to go through, and she's presumably grieving about the loss of her husband while trying to hold a family together and probably financial loss as well that she's got to consider. So she's under a great deal of pressure. To what extent is this going to amplify the absence of his own mother from his own life? Now he's kind of effectively emotionally abandoned by his own foster mother. Well, I think here's a young lad who's just taking each day as it comes and coping with whatever life puts in front of him on, on any particular day. So so I'm not sure he's kind of thinking, you know, in terms of that bigger picture that, that we tend to take when we look back on it. At a very young age, Mike, Black becomes fascinated by genitalia. How does this manifest itself? Well, people say he was fascinated, but I think most kids... Uh, are at five. Show me yours, I'll show you mine. And well, you go first. It's quite common you hear that with children. They're going to want to know why is a girl different than a boy and what have you done playing with yours that you've lost it and things like that. So I don't see that as worrying at all at that age. Later on, he should have developed and he doesn't. What's interesting, he seems to have this kind of fixation on young girls. It's interesting, even one of his older victims was 15 but was only four foot 11 and would pass as a much younger girl. So it's kind of around about age 8, 9, 10, he's age fixed and then he doesn't move on, where most males will then move on to, to adults, women and things like that. He's kind of stuck at that, that age group. Liz, do you think we're lending too much significance into this childhood fascination with genitalia? Well, I mean, we can look back and we can make anything meaningful that doesn't carry a lot of meaning when we're looking back at the the life of a serial killer. But I think what it's suggesting to me is perhaps that there wasn't that that sort of confrontation of, of, of his behaviour. So so normally, you know, when, when children are talking about their genitalia and, and saying, you know, you, you show me yours and I'll show you mine, you know, parents step in and say, hang on a minute, you know, that's, that's not acceptable. You're not, you're not allowed to do things like that. And that kind of puts a, a lid on that behaviour. Or you're brought up in a family where nudity is accepted, where uh, people get in the baths, the children get in the baths with the parents to a certain age, and then the child, usually about seven or eight, wants to have their privacy. Um, but when they're very young, they often just dive into the bath when, when parents are in the bath. So they would have seen it and not had the big issue. If it's secret, and I imagine it would be in this kind of Scottish background where it's very kind of conservative, we are talking about 50 years ago, more than 50 years ago, a very conservative background, then it would be more exciting. Well, as we've been hearing, the young Robert Black had a rough start in life and at school things don't get much better. He's often bullied and also begins to show increasingly alarming behaviour. Why is he picked out and bullied, Mike? He's referred to as smelly tulip. He doesn't take a lot of interest in his uh, hygiene, so kids don't like smelly kids, first of all. He's not particularly physically attractive. He's not skilled at sports. He's not got many things that children like in other children. And he hasn't got a mummy and a daddy. And kids, those, that generation, expected you to have a mother and a father. And he's different. He's in a foster home. He hasn't got the, he hasn't got the right history. Mm-hmm. And I suspect parents on the side are also saying, don't play with him, dear. Go and play with Jimmy down the road or, or Margaret down the road or whatever because they're from a better family. Well, Liz, what impact does this have on him, this stigma? 
Well, he, he's a kid who doesn't look like other kids, who isn't from the same background that, that other kids are from, and, and he's stigmatised because of that. So so I think it's this ongoing sense of, of isolation. He doesn't have any allies at home, and he certainly doesn't have any allies at school, so he's very much on his own. Around the age of eight, it's thought that he starts to chase girls to look up their skirts. Is this innocent or something more sinister? Because he's not the type of popular kid who might get away with that kind of behaviour in a schoolyard. I think that's, the, that's it. He wasn't popular, therefore people would complain about it. But I don't, I don't think we should read too much into it. I think it's more of irritation. He's probably doing it to irritate the girls because they're not nice to him rather than any predatory sexual behaviour. I think he's far too young for that. You don't think there's any kind of pathological significance in the fact that when he's looking after a baby or cradling it, he takes it to another room so we can look at its bits, its genitalia? Yeah, that that's an interesting episode, isn't it? And it, it's another one of these where let's attach lots of meaning to it now, kind of in the aftermath. How old was he when that occurred? Well, around eight. And but I mean, as much as you might lend much significance to that, to that, I think one certainly would kind of raise alarm bells when he starts putting all sorts of objects up his rectum. I mean. This is learned behaviour. This says to me that something ver- was very amiss in that foster home. What it says to me is that somebody's done it to him. I think, you know, a child is unlikely, even though they're exploring the, the rectal passage, they're unlikely to stick anything up that's painful. But what he's doing, I suspect, is repeating what's already been done to him. I mean, today, that would be, people would think, CSA, child sexual abuse, mm. there's something here, this is learned behaviour. And uh, certainly social services would be racing into a case like this today, but not then, of course. No, no, absolutely. And We're looking at children who are brutalised, essentially, by the people who are supposed to be looking after them. And we're assuming, you know, there's this assumption that, that foster parents are, are caring for children, you know, that they're, they're doing right by them. And there's this idea of the privacy of the family as well, that it's actually none of our business how, how people are bringing up their kids. So now we imagine that he's suffered child sexual abuse while in foster care at home and now he suffers another tragedy his foster mother dies and he's now placed within the care system and the care system back then you know even today isn't much of a good parent no it's very it's a very brutalized institution where you're dealing with 10 11 and 12 year olds who often have health problems have mental health problems have family dynamics to resolve it's not a nice place and you're dealing with very often very inexperienced staff. Robert is now showing displays of violence, especially towards girls, it's reported at this stage. Is this grief or is it something more sinister? Is it an amplification of the abuse he suffered earlier? I think it's likely to be an extension of the abuse he's getting or has received in, in, in his recent history. I don't see it as a grief reaction at all. I don't see it that way. I see it very much as a sexual behaviour. Now, whether it's response to abuse to him or it's uh, driven by his own interests is debatable. But so I don't think it's grief. Well, he, he's gone from a situation where he, he's been abused himself by his caregivers and now he's entered an environment where there are lots of other children who've experienced similar things like that. So, so it becomes a very toxic environment. And chronologically, he now moves from one care home to an all-boys care home because he's proved to be 
too sexually aware. And he goes to this old boy's care home and he's abused by a member of staff there for three years. I mean, that would have had a devastating impact upon the future of Robert Black. One thing, we, we, we concentrate a lot on, on mothers, and rightly so, but what we often forget is the importance of the father. And, and go back 50 years ago, McCord and McCord were saying this is, the lack of a father is a good indicator of criminality. So here we have a loss of a father, because he never had one natural father, a loss of a foster father. Now we've got a loss of a, a foster mother, and we've got a substitute father in the institution who, instead of caring, loving and being uh, protective, is actually abusing him. So he's got a very screwed up perception of what's, go- what's, what's right and what's wrong. Yes, that's right, isn't he? He must have no concept of what normal actually is. Well, the abuse and neglect and, and violence have become completely normalised for him, and I think it's something that he comes to, to expect. Aged 15, Robert Black leaves that all-boys care home and enters the big wide world and gets his first job as a butcher's delivery driver. Black now has his first real sense of freedom, but begins to show some worrying tendencies. He begins to watch and follow young girls, and we believe that he may have fondled around 30 to 40 young girls in this period. What's worrying about the fact that he starts fondling these girls is he gets away with it. So it's not having his hands slapped, taken into court, saying this is not done. He's actually, A, being successful in his criminal behaviour, he's having no boundaries set for him. So he's learned that he can get away with it. And aged 15 or 16, he doesn't seem to be able to have the skills to get a girlfriend of his own. No, I mean, he, he clearly wants sex, but he doesn't have those social skills to, to begin a relationship and have a relationship that evolves normally. So so he just goes out to, to get, you know, what he wants. And he's also he... been in, a, in an all-male institution. I mean, no doubt will be female staff, but he's not having the opportunity to make all those kind of social gaffes that you do when you're a teenage boy. He's not doing that. Young girls are more compliant because they don't know what he's about to do to them. He can physically deal with them. So that's why. And as we said earlier on, he's got this eight, eight, nine-year-old fixation because that was the last time he had any sexual experience that he enjoyed. So he's going to go and repeat that. And do you think that he realised his behaviour was abnormal? Well, it's what, what has he had to compare it against? I mean, I think that there is going to be some realisation that actually, you know, what he's doing is, is unacceptable because he's going out there in the world, he's, he's engaging it in work, in an occupation, but it's an occupation in which he's alone quite a lot of the time, isn't it? And for the very first time, age 16, he gets arrested for abusing a girl in Greenock but is led off with a caution for lewd and libidinous behaviour. Does this empower him to think he can get away with much more? Yes, without doubt. He, he, he's, he's had, by his own self-confessions, 30 or 40 uh, girls he's sexually assaulted. He then gets caught and he gets a slapped hand and nothing much more than that. So he, he can get away with it. He tries then to get a sense of normality and after this brush with the law, Black moves to Grangemouth and takes a low-paid menial job at a building firm. And here we see a change in that he does begin a relationship with his first and only 
girlfriend. He meets Pamela Hodgson outside a youth club and they hit it off and she accepts his proposal of marriage. However, the relationship ends after Pamela is simply unable to cope with his odd behaviour and strange sexual demands. As I understand it, he, he, he met this girl, he became infatuated with her, far too quickly suggested marriage and asked her to marry and I suspect she just was scared off by that because he, she was young, he was young I think he had no boundaries again as to what you do in a relationship and he went far too fast. Do you think he thought that this was his chance to escape his other offending behaviour? I don't know whether he he's seeing it as anything that's kind of fundamentally out of order. I mean, it's something that, that he's used to, it's something that he wants to do. So I think he's just going to try and find more opportunities to, to, to have power over other people in that way. And now he has suffered rejection at the hands of somebody he was very much obsessed with. What impact does that have on, upon him? Because, of course, he's been rejected all his life. He goes down back to what he knows. Resort to younger females where he can successfully have some form of sexual relationship with them. However bizarre it is to the rest of the world, he would perceive it as being acceptable to him. Could he have had ever a successful relationship with Pamela? Was that a possible opportunity? I mean, you've got to think about what, what is the, the normal progression of a relationship when you're in your, your late teens. And and even, you know, sometimes teenagers' relationships are quite intense and, and quite quite fiery and they, they, they blow up very quickly. But I think even even he was just too quick off the mark here and because he just didn't know what those those normal you know patterns of behaviour are when you're, you're first getting together with somebody. Well, days after his engagement is broken off, Black is caught interfering with his landlady's granddaughter. Although not reported to police, he's run out of town by the locals. But he can't help himself, and in 1967, just a month shy of his 20th birthday, Black is incarcerated for indecent assault. He ends up in Borstal, Liz. Yeah, he's back in an institution again, isn't he? Uh, and there are obviously going to be lads in there from, from, from similar backgrounds to him. So, so this is not a good thing for him at all. He's not going to get any treatment. He's not going to be there long enough to have sex therapy that he clearly needed. All that's happening is he's there, he's being held in the institution for X number of months and then kicked out. No treatment, so all that happens is he gets fitter and angrier and cleverer. Well, after leaving Borsal, he heads to London and anonymity. He settles in King's Cross, an area of seedy sex shops and brothels. And here he finds easy access to some disturbing imagery and material. Here's author Tim Tate. Child pornography is the wrong phrase, but it's the one we're stuck with. Child pornography conjures up an image of pornography. It isn't. It's the pictorial record of sexual assaults against children. For men like Black, it didn't replace, it never replaces contact offending with children. It reinforces it. It makes it okay because it's there in print or on celluloid. So the issue of Black engaging with pornographic images at this stage, he's still quite young, he's suffered sexual abuse, he's committed sexual crimes. Is this like crack cocaine to him? Well, I'm not sure about crack cocaine, but certainly it depends on what material he's getting and how deviant the uh, sexual behaviour is. But by that time, I would imagine he's getting pictures and possibly even films of child abuse, and then he's enjoying watching that. It's likely he will masturbate to that, which reinforces the whole uh, cycle of sexual abuse. 
Yeah, it's the ability to, 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 to watch the kind of things that he wants to do that's constantly reinforcing it for him. And nothing's there challenging him, you know, mm. saying that this is inappropriate and, and you should stop this. He's able to, to develop and escalate. In London, Black becomes friendly with Edward and Catherine Rayson and he rents a room off them. He will share their house for 20 years and appears to be a good tenant, even helping out with babysitting duties for the brood of kids. Now... Is there a sense he's trying to curb his urges here? He's doing his darts, he's trying to fit in, uh, he's doing some photography. By all accounts, he appears to be looking for stability and be quite normal. No, No, he's looking for opportunities to offend, isn't he? So this must have been part cover for his future behaviours, Liz. I just think it, it was it, it was an opportunity for for him. You know, he he places himself within a family home quite deliberately, doesn't he? And I think that there were other opportunities. Yeah, you know, he could have gone and, and lodged with with people who didn't have kids. He could have gone and put himself up in a hostel. But no, he chose to go into this environment for a reason. Well, if we're to believe police, by 1976, we believe Black had abstained from molesting children for 10 years, although he is clearly a consumer of child porn. I'd find it difficult to believe he did abstain for that long. No, he wouldn't have done. We We know the pattern. We know that sex offenders do not stop. They don't get caught. And if you look at all the research in the States and Canada and the UK, if you ask a sex offender and you give them immunity, they will tell you a completely different story that they are sexually offending every day. But they have maybe six months, a couple of years of non-offending behaviour, according to the law. But according to the uh, offenders, they are at it all the time. They're not going to... He's young. He's sexually active. He's not going to live in a monastery for 10 years. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.
1976, he also purchases a wide van and begins life as a delivery driver. And he's now free to roam the country. Using this as cover, it's believed that in 1978, he abducted and killed Jeanette Tate in Devon and her body has never been found. So the fact that he's gone and escalated from abusing and molesting children to killing, why has he done this? Yeah, I, I disagree with you with the, the white van. I think the white van was more to do with the work opportunity. He was able to get a job as a, as a driver. He also, when he worked for these firms, would work at weekends and odd times that other people didn't want to, to work. If you're a family man, you don't necessarily want to work weekends. He also went to Northern Ireland during what we call the Troubles. So he was going to places that other people didn't want to go to. That allowed him money, allowed him freedom and opportunity, but I don't see the white van was brought to uh, abduct children. I see that as being an extension of his work life. The opportunity, the opportunity was that the white that, that he had transport. I get the I get the opportunity. It's not that's not the point I'm making. The point is the driver, the fact as a delivery driver, has given an opportunity to develop and spend all these long hours developing and feeding his fantasies. And so at some stage, an opportunity would walk past his way and then he can use it. And so it's quite interesting. The occupation of a delivery driver may have facilitated this, not in terms of just the fact that he had a van, but also he had the time to to unravel and and deduce his fantasies, Liz. You could argue that he didn't have... He had less opportunity... Because if he's driving the places, he doesn't know where uh, kids are going to be and things like that. If he was working down the road and he could see the school kids or whatever, he would get to know them, he could build up contact. If he's on the road, he's on his own for a lot of the time, he's not going to have opportunity to, to build up relationships. Okay, he has the opportunity, or no, he creates an opportunity by abducting children, but I think that was an extension of his sexual behaviour rather than... Pre-planned. You, don't think, you don't think he's got hours, opportunity to fantasise? That's what these guys do, no? Yeah, but why not sit down and watch the video at home? There's no video at home. He's in a car. He's in the yeah, exactly. Delivery. So he's got hours driving from London all the way, all the way up to Scotland. Liz. Well, I think what he found appealing about this job as a delivery driver is that he doesn't have to interact with other people very much, mm. and this is somebody who really doesn't doesn't like interacting with other people. He just doesn't have the social skills to do so. Mm. And I think maybe during the course of that employment, these opportunities present themselves. And why is he escalating now to murdering children rather than molesting? Well, it is it is that escalation of behaviour, you know, unless there's there's a break put on it, and unless they, they get caught and the, the, there's some kind of consequence, then it is only going to get worse. But we need to look at what was the turning point, because a lot of sex offenders never escalate. They carry on uh, sexually assaulting young children for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, unfortunately. Why did he go? Because he wanted more excitement, I suspect the pornography wasn't fulfilling the job. I suspect also it was a mistake the first time. I've come across sex offenders who have abducted children, put a hand over their mouth and the child has gone unconscious or whatever and actually unintentionally harmed them. And then develop that as part of the next attack is that when they get a a child, they then purposely make them unconscious. And from then onwards, you start to see that movement to to the more sexual violence and then the killing. And then the other thing is he doesn't want to get caught. So it gets to the point where he's got to kill the victim because he's going to get caught. 
And he becomes really quite adept at this snatch, kidnap, abuse, murder. He does, because he doesn't have those those social skills that you'd need to, to, to what we call groom a, mm. a child, yeah. does he? So it is this snatch and grab approach, because he's unable to, to, to kind of lure them in by other means. But also, go back 30, 40 years ago, we didn't have stranger danger, which... I think it's wrong, actually. Mm-hmm. You're more likely to be abused by your family and your mum's fancy man than almost anybody else at, at a very young age. But we didn't have that that danger that we have now. Children don't go and play on the streets quite so much. They are much more aware, not sexual assault, but aware of what they do and what they don't do. And I think parents are much more controlling now than they were in those days. I think the idea of risk hadn't really developed to the degree that it has today. I mean, the world was seen as a, a safer place, wasn't it? Well, many murders followed this very first killing. Between 1981 and 1986, Black kidnapped, sexually assaulted and killed at least four girls between the ages of 5 and 11, but he thought that he may have killed at least 15 more. He was finally caught in 1990 as he attempted to abduct a six-year-old child in the village of Stowe in Scotland. Now, the escalation, just to return to that point, why do you think he did escalate from child molester to child murderer? Is it because he could? He could, and I think he he needed it for his own sexual satisfaction and excitement. Also, if you look at the, the, the victims, they were abused a lot more. There was a lot more physical abuse as time went on, and I think he had to get to the stage where he would have to kill them. The other interesting thing is that he had a killing kit with him. He had the ropes, he had all the equipment he needed in a bag. So while whoever the victim was may have been opportunistic, he clearly had the plan in his head to abduct a child and to kill a child. Going back to his childhood and look at a toxic combination of abandonment multiple times, the death and grief, child sexual abuse... Those, that anal penetration, some suggestion of abuse in his foster home and then in the other boy's home. You know, was he always doomed to be a sexual predator or a sexual perpetrator? Well, I think we have to look at, at children who experience you know, abuse and neglect and violence during their childhoods. Not all of them will go on to harm other people, but I think in the case of Robert Black, we've got so many other toxic factors that are in the mix there. We've got you know him entering the care system, and he, he's certainly not getting any kind of support there. You know, he, he's ostracised in terms of his peers, so, so there's a lot of stuff going on. Well, going back to his mother, do you think if his mother, if he had been part of that brood of four and he hadn't been the abandoned one do you think he would have had a very different life oh without any doubt if he'd been loved and cared for by a father and a mother and in a loving relationship and not being abused he would have no doubt would have been different but it's the circumstances and the problem is we can look back and say these are the factors that influenced him but what we can't often do is look futuristically and say if we don't do this and this, this person's going to kill. It seems he was let down by his mother most profoundly and, of course, all the other ad- adults that were brought in, that surrogate parent's role, also let him down, physically abused him or sexually abused him. I mean, he, what impact did that have on the crimes he would later commit? 
Well, I think he he's you know completely yeah, unable to have you know those those respectful adult relationships with appropriate boundaries. He's living at a whole different value system to the rest of us. But he's very aware of that. I think um, he knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing is wrong, and he's determined he's not going to get caught. It's clear to me there were moments when he could have been stopped. No, because you have the law, which would have been certain offences would have been maximum of, say, 12 months, 24 months imprisonment. He would have probably done six to eight months in prison or Borstal or or some institution. That's not enough time to engage him in therapy. If he was was recognised as a sex offender and was willing, and this is the problem, a lot of sex offenders aren't willing to get treatment. If he's willing to get treatment, you're looking at two, three years in in the system. And the system isn't built for short-term intervention. How come he got away with it for so long? Because people didn't recognise the pattern. I mean, he was very clever in the sense of killing in Northern Ireland, killing in Scotland, killing in, in, in the Midlands. We had 48 pr- police forces in England at the time, and then we got the, they were more than Scotland, and there's only one now. But they had a problem. The police forces didn't interact with each other. You weren't expecting a killing in Scotland to have any relationship to one in Northern Ireland. And the other thing, one of his child was only five, one of his victims, and at five, the prospects are that you're going to be killed by your parents or carers or babysitters or something like that, not a complete stranger. So again, you've got a, a, a five-year-old and people are looking at nearest and dearest. They're not looking at complete strangers. Final question. In this era of pornography so pervasive, are we going to see more killers like Robert Black or less? Well, I think we're in it. We're in a slightly different environment now, aren't we? I think we're we're more aware of of people when they come onto the radar of the, the criminal justice system in terms of what behaviour might indicate in the future. But but at the same time, we, we've also got this this kind of dark underworld on the internet where people can meet up and, and connect with others with similar kind of deviant fantasies. So so that is worrying for me. Yeah, I mean we we've identified um, in some research that we've been involved in, which shows a hierarchy where a lot of porn is passed between ordinary porn-interested men and women, and then you get a hierarchy where the top ones are dealing in very high-quality, very obscene pornography, where there's uh, very small groups of people who are trading with each other thousands and thousands of images. And with a computer, with an ordinary uh, USB, you can transport horrendous amounts of porn from one person's machine to another. And these are people who are dealing at very, very high level. Would this mean more murderers like Robert Black or less? There is an argument that if you watch porn, you will become a sex offender. There's an equal, equal argument that watching porn will not make you a sex offender. You need to have other factors going on in your life, all those coming together. Are we likely to have another Robert Black? No. The reason I say that is because I think the police are much more uh, communicative than they were before. I think they're much, well, certainly with homes, so the, the, the computer system, they would recognise crimes, I think, at a much earlier stage. I would hope that we're actually going to get a situation where crime would be detected, the pattern would be detected easier.
Yeah, I think the police have closed a lot of those those yeah. gaps that, that offenders like Robert Black used to fall through. Yeah. So, so I think in, in today's society, with with the, the joined up policing that that we see now, mm. you know, it, there may be offenders like this, but they wouldn't get away with it for as long as Robert Black did. Well, nice to end on a positive note after such a horrific story. Black died in prison when police were just months away from charging him with yet another murder. Well, thank you to my guests, Dr. Elizabeth Yardley and Mike Berry, and of course, you can watch the full document. Murderers and Their Mothers, Robert Black on CBS Reality. Next time we'll be looking at the complex case of Leszek Pankalski. From me, Donald McIntyre, it's goodbye. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.